Welcome to Christendom College. My name is Adam Wilson and I serve as the Principal's Production Manager here at the college. We're so happy to have all of you here with us today. A special word of gratitude to our Principal Society members, our President's Council members, and all of our other benefactors who are here with us today. Through their support, we are educating the next generation of Catholic leaders here at Christendom College and spreading the truth with the wider world through principles. If you would like to ask any questions today during today's live lecture, you can type them into the comment box below. It's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Kathleen Sullivan. Raised in New England, Dr. Sullivan traded the snowy mountains of New Hampshire for the sunny hills of California to study at Thomas Aquinas College for her bachelor's degree in the liberal arts. A master's degree in literature at the University of Dallas followed before she attained her doctorate degree at the Catholic University of America. Throughout her studies, Dr. Sullivan taught courses in literature, composition, and rhetoric for both college and high school students. Currently an assistant professor in the Department of English Language and Literature at Christendom, Dr. Sullivan teaches literature courses all the while embracing the Catholic and community life here at the college. We hope you enjoy today's Principal's Live Lecture. Thank you. Thank you for joining Principal's Live Lecture. Let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death, amen. Our Lady, seat of wisdom, pray for us. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Well, it's great to be here, and my lecture is entitled, Why Read Jane Austen? A Lesson in Humility. And I will address the first question before moving into the more humbling aspect of her 1813 novel, Pride and Prejudice. Overall, I hope to show how Austen's novel presents a character, Elizabeth Bennet, who desires to be virtuous, to live according to the truth, and directs her intellect and will towards that end. The crucial moment for Elizabeth's epiphany occurs at the reading of a letter. Thus, I will also examine letter writing as an activity also aligned with virtue. That's my academic goal for this lecture, but overall, I hope you simply enjoy this and are intrigued enough to take a closer look at Austen's novels. Why read Jane Austen? As a professor of literature, I am often asked for book recommendations and to both new acquaintances and familiar friends. I always include an Austen book on the list of must reads. And every now and then I receive a reaction of, really? But I've seen the movies. It's just a bunch of women talking. And they drink tea, they go for a dance, they go for walks. It's not very exciting. There's no fighting dragons, like in Beowulf, no journey through the afterlife as in Dante. No repentant axe murderers like Raskolnikov in Crime and Punishment. Or no interesting characters like the teddy bear carrying Sebastian Flight in Brideshead Revisited or characters like the judgmental grandmother and the misfit in Flannery O'Connor's A Good Man is Hard to Find, all of which are works we do read in Christendom's literature core classes here at the college. Why should I read a book where nothing important happens? 
Now I do want to concede that they have a point. Jane Austen was born in England to a gentry clergyman, the seventh of eight children. She had six brothers and one sister. She was born on December 16, 1775, while the American Revolution was occurring. She grew up during the French Revolution. Her brothers joined the British Navy and they fought in the Napoleonic Wars. They sailed the oceans, they dined with Lord Nelson. Her sister's fiance died of yellow fever in the West Indies. Her elder brother went fox hunting with the Prince of Wales, later the Prince Regent. And yet, Austen writes about none of that. Instead, she writes about sisters who have troubles in sense and sensibility. She writes about a spoiled daughter who wants to play matchmaker in Emma. She writes about an overly imaginative teenage girl in Northanger Abbey and so forth, very ordinary. Now, Jane Austen herself was aware of her scope in her narratives. She once explained that she does not paint on a wide canvas with broad sweeping brushstrokes. Instead, and these are her own words, she says she writes on, quote, a little bit two inches wide of ivory with so fine a brush as produces little effort after much labor, end quote. To return then, why read Jane Austen when she's so focused on this little bit of ivory and nothing grand or big or exciting happens? Well, to that I reply, if you consider nothing important happening except the significant discovery of truths about human nature that can impart eternal effects on your immortal soul, then maybe, but what could be more important than that? Now, I might seem like I'm exaggerating, but let me elaborate. Like other great artists, Austin engages our minds and hearts. She engages our intellect and our imagination and emotion to show us characters who make mistakes, they misjudge others, they cause unintentional and sometimes intentional hurt, characters who long for understanding and loving relationships, characters who fall into sin, characters who resist temptations to sin, who offer forgiveness, who strive for virtue. So we are the characters in her novels. She writes about us. We talk. We judge, we posit opinions, we make choices, we handle the consequences of those choices as best we can. And that is key, the word best. What I want to emphasize today and in my upcoming principles class on Jane Austen and the good life next year, and I'll also be teaching a literature course in the English department here on the novels of Jane Austen next semester. But what I want to emphasize is how Austin shows us the best kind of life, one where moral truth and virtues are the foundations for flourishing in our relationships and reality. Why read Austin? She makes living the good life attractive and attainable. And with her typical wit and humor, she also makes it enjoyable. For the rest of our time, I will use Pride and Prejudice as an example of how Elizabeth Bennet's powerful lesson in humility is the first step in her growth in virtue, in her determination to know and do what is good.
To those unfamiliar with the novel, I'll read the opening famous first line and offer some helpful context to set the stage for Elizabeth's epiphany. Pride and Prejudice begins, quote, It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. End quote. This first line is classic Austen, an example of her wit and subtle irony that such universal truths exist in all men's minds. When, of course, this is really the desire of the mothers in this early 19th century setting and the daughters. One such daughter is Elizabeth Bennet, 20 years old, quick and witty, with a flair for dancing brightly both on the ballroom floor and in conversation. At one such ball, she is rudely snubbed by the wealthy newcomer to the neighborhood, Fitzwilliam Darcy. In a memorable moment, Darcy's friend, Mr. Bingley, admonishes him on his refusal to dance, to which Darcy replies, quote, You are dancing with the only handsome girl in the room, said Mr. Darcy, looking at the eldest Miss Bennet. Oh, she is the most beautiful creature I ever beheld, says Mr. Bingley. But there is one of her sisters sitting down just behind you who is very pretty and I dare say very agreeable. Do let me ask my partner to introduce you. Which do you mean? And turning round, he looked for a moment at Elizabeth till, catching her eye, he withdrew his own and coldly said, she is tolerable, but not handsome enough to tempt me. And I am in no humor at present to give consequence to young ladies who are slighted by other men. You had better return to your partner and enjoy her smiles, for you are wasting your time with me. Mr. Bingley followed his advice. Mr. Darcy walked off, and Elizabeth remained with no very cordial feelings towards him. She told the story, however, with great spirit amongst her friends, for she had a lively, playful disposition, which delighted in anything ridiculous. End quote. Wasn't that terribly rude? And this is the key element, too. He waits until he catches her eye and therefore knows that she can hear him. Thus set the, the stage is set for Elizabeth's lack of respect or admiration for Darcy, and all her subsequent judgments are filtered through that lens. Darcy, on the other hand, finds himself entranced by Elizabeth's, quote, fine eyes and her intelligence. They meet several times more at other opportunities. They spar in sparkling dialogue, but overall, Elizabeth always is relieved when she leaves his presence. However, in the middle of the novel, Elizabeth found herself receiving a surprising marriage proposal from Mr. Darcy, and she firmly and not so gently rejects him, claiming he has no right to expect acquiescence from her when he was the means of ruining her sister Jane's happiness, as well as a newer acquaintance's livelihood, Mr. Wickham. Needless to say, for both involved, this proposal did not go well. So, the next morning, Mr. Darcy intercepted her on a walk to give her a letter. Although she did not want to face him, she took the letter, and he leaves with a short word requesting that she would do him the honor of reading it. 
Now, before I examine Elizabeth's response to this letter, I'd like to offer three brief points about the nature of letters and letter writings as we see them in these narratives. First, letter writing is a unique activity for it requires a stasis. You must be stationary in order to participate in the act of writing a letter. And I, and I would say too, even today, texting and walking can, can cause painful consequences. But in a way, this activity is a restful one. Second, letter writing is an act that requires the writer to reflect on the past while being in the present and with an eye to the future for when it will be read. Thus, letter writing both pauses and transcends time, if you will, in a way. And finally, letter writing is tied to personhood. It is a way to impart our intangible thoughts onto a tangible record. When we send a letter, we send part of ourselves and we place that self in a position of vulnerability. For the letter could be lost, destroyed, misinterpreted, yet it could also be saved, treasured, and valued as a sign of that person. Overall, letter writing is an art and an activity that I would argue is tied to the practice of virtue, precisely because it requires time, deliberation, and vulnerability. So to return to Mr. Darcy's letter, almost any scholarly examination of Pride and Prejudice comments on that letter. To list a few of these critical comments, Darcy's letter has been called by Austin scholar Tony Tanner as, quote, the most important event of the book. Another critic, Daryl Jones, calls this the, quote, crucial narrative event. It's been characterized by others as a moment of recognition and reversal, the peripatia, the precipitation when Elizabeth reinvents, reinterprets herself, and Marilyn Butler, another Austin scholar, calls it Elizabeth's moment of self-discovery, an Austin critic, there are many Austin critics, Alistair Duckworth says, Elizabeth's reaction to this letter is the first moment when she, quotes, turns inward on herself, end quote. Although Darcy signs the letter with an act of charity, he writes as his final words, quote, I will only add, God bless you, Fitzwilliam Darcy, this letter breaks Elizabeth. It is a powerful lesson in humility. After reading it, Elizabeth's feelings were, quote, acutely painful and difficult of definition. Words of intense emotion describe Elizabeth's response to this letter. And I quote here, astonishment, apprehension, even horror oppressed her. She was, quote, perturbed and mortified to read parts, especially with regard to herself and family. Finally, after rereading the letter once more, Elizabeth, quote, grew absolutely ashamed of herself, end quote. Thinking, how could she have ever been so, and this again is a quote, blind, partial, 
prejudiced, absurd. Elizabeth is truly humbled, and all her prior prideful conceptions of her knowledge of herself and others and the world are broken down. And she famously claims after reading this letter, quote, till this moment, I never knew myself, end quote. Now, Archbishop Fulton Sheen, not an Austin scholar, but I'm sure he read and enjoyed her, about 100 years later after Austin, offered a reminder that broken things are precious. Fulton Sheen said, quote, broken flowers give perfume. Broken incense is used in adoration. A broken ship saved Paul and many other passengers on the way to Rome. Sometimes the only way the good Lord can get into some hearts is to break them. End quote. Breaking down a self-inflated misconception about herself and others is one way the good Lord gets into Elizabeth's heart and indeed into ours. Yet with this brokenness, this lesson in humility, we see strength. We see Elizabeth's desires to know what is true and her desire to do what is right. In other words, we see her use her intellect and her will to grow in virtue. Elizabeth enters a contemplative process having had to pick up the pieces of the shattered portrait of her previous judgments on others and to re-piece them together in light of the new knowledge from Darcy's letter. And this process takes time. Austin references Elizabeth's continual walking, pausing, rereading, reflecting on the letter. All of this in emphasis that interior change, especially growth in virtue, is a difficult and gradual alteration. Austin writes again that, quote, reflection must be reserved for a solitary hour, end quote. So whenever Elizabeth found her chance to be alone, not a day would go by, Austin writes, in which she would indulge in a reflection on the letter. So two attitudes that we see in Elizabeth's character to note. First, growth in virtue requires an active, and deep internal life of reflection and contemplation on what is true. Elizabeth enters this period of intense reflection. It was good that Darcy did not attempt to converse with her in person after the failed proposal, for we are notoriously incapable of thinking objectively when intense emotions clouds our judgment. Presumably, had Darcy given this explanation in person, it would not have had as great an impact on Elizabeth, since she might have heard his words only with indignation, or she might have prevented him from continuing to speak by simply walking away. Having the ability to hold on to that tangible record of his thoughts, to pause and ponder, to reread and reconsider the words of the letter and often in solitude, is the key to Elizabeth's humble admittance that her prior notion was false, and it is the key for her willingness to adjust her view to the truth. 
Now, the second attitude to note often shows how humility is related to the growth in virtue. In particular, for Elizabeth, I want to focus on the virtues of fortitude and hope. One consequence of experience broken, brokenness is to give up, to lose hope of renewal, to remain unwilling or unable to let in any healing, to put up implacable barriers in order to prevent such hurt and humiliation from happening again. But the courageous soul sees the humbled heart as a pathway to growth by allowing light to shine through those brokenness, letting it expand and deepen our understanding. Indeed, earlier in the novel, Elizabeth was characterized as having a quickness of observation and less pliancy of temper than her sister, and as having a judgment too unassailed by any attention to herself, end quote. Elizabeth was judgmental, at times very sarcastic, and certainly she was not used to hearing contradictions to her judgments until now. By now imaginatively experiencing Darcy's own pain and understanding his reasons as he set forth in his letter enables her to realize that hers was not the only worth opinion worth holding and that she could and she was deeply mistaken about another's motivations. Elizabeth learns to reread and reinterpret a character which again takes time, space, and solitude, and these are necessary for our objective opinions to be formed, which are necessary for us to grow in virtue. And does Elizabeth grow? Indeed she does, and without giving too much away from the rest of the plot, and I, and I do hope that those of you who have not read the book will be encouraged to pick it up. Uh, suffice it to say that Elizabeth's humiliation is the start of her demonstration of fortitude in living according to the rightly ordered perspective of the past and present. Her lesson in humility adds for more vulnerable and attentive state of mind. It takes courage for her to admit she was wrong and she still knows very little about Mr. Darcy's character. So we see this progress in virtue when she visits Darcy's estate on a tour. And instead of rejecting complimentary comments about Darcy, Elizabeth lets them in. She ponders them and she allows these new perspectives to be placed in the picture of his character in her mind. Later, she grows in gratitude towards him, gaining a profound respect for how he handles a difficult situation. And this gratitude and respect gradually deepens to a love. But we note that Elizabeth longs to reveal her love, but has little opportunity to do so. So she perseveres in ways to show her regard for him without boldly or improperly crossing any social or moral barriers. In one of my favorite of these ordinary examples of Elizabeth's virtue, particularly her fortitude and hope, near the end of the novel, Mr. Darcy has returned to the neighborhood after a considerable absence and is among a group of people having tea and coffee at the Bennett's house. Note how Elizabeth hopes, doubts, perseveres, 
And then courageously, and I will say it's very ordinary, she acts. So I'll read the passage and then I will um, offer some commentary um, both within and then after the passage. Austin writes, quote, Elizabeth was in hopes that the evening would afford some opportunity of bringing them together, that the whole of the visit would not pass away without enabling them to enter into something more of conversation than the mere ceremonious salutation attending his entrance. And I just have to pause here too to praise Jane Austen's prose. Her ability to choose the precise word and form complex yet clear sentences shows she has a good ear for beauty, for the beauty of sound, as exemplified in that last phrase, ceremonious salutation. So to continue though with the scene. Anxious and uneasy, the period which passed in the drawing room before the gentleman came was wearisome and dull to a degree that almost made her uncivil. She looked forward to their entrance as the point on which all her chance of pleasure for the evening must depend. If he does not come to me then, said she, I shall give him up forever. And I'm going to pause right here. Here, I do want to say we can see her practicing her virtues while still being fully alive to her emotions. Her emotions cause her to make that extreme self-declaration of I shall give him up forever. And although she feels the dullness and boredom, she still acts with civility and she still has hope. Both examples of her practicing this virtue, ordinary though it seems. The scene then picks up. The gentleman came and she thought he looked as if he would have answered her hopes, but alas, the ladies had crowded round the table where Miss Bennet was making tea and Elizabeth pouring out the coffee in so close a confederacy that there was not a single vacancy near her which would admit of a chair. And on the gentleman's approaching, one of the girls moved closer to her than ever and said in a whisper, the men shan't come and part us. I am determined. We want none of them, do we? <laughs> Can we all imagine that frustration? To continue, Darcy had walked away to another part of the room. She followed him with her eyes, envied everyone to whom he spoke, had scarcely patience enough to help anybody with coffee, and then was enraged against herself for being so silly. A man who has once been refused, how could I ever be foolish enough to expect a renewal of his love? She was a little revived, however, by his bringing back his coffee cup himself. And she seized the opportunity of saying, is your sister at Pemberley still? End quote. Darcy replies in the affirmative, and a brief conversation happily ensues, which ends too soon for Elizabeth, but it does give her that hope. She had acted according to the social and moral codes of the time, and the key is she acted. By this time in this novel, she has demonstrated her strength in overcoming faults, embarrassment, earlier humiliations, and now we see her practicing all that she gained from her lesson in humility. She is patient, as difficult as it was. She's hopeful. Even though despair is present, she'll give him up forever. And she places herself in a moment of vulnerability by revealing her regard for him, even if her expression was as unassuming a question as, how's your family doing? In such times of trial of the human heart, sometimes the calm question best expresses the intensity of feeling. 
Austin masterfully shows that even the most ordinary of such situations, an extraordinary demonstration of virtue is possible. In conclusion, were it not for the humbling of her pride and prejudice against Mr. Darcy through reading his letter, Elizabeth might have continued down her path of believing that, quote, the more I see of the world, the more I am dissatisfied with it, as she had claimed in earlier pages of the novel. His letter enabled Elizabeth to encounter his thoughtful inner life, wanting the best for those he loves, and giving her the realization that the world and its people are not as dissatisfactory as she had thought. It enabled her to reevaluate her own life and to align herself with the truth. And I will say, although I did not analyze Darcy's own lesson in humility when his marriage proposal was rejected, he also, in the act of writing the letter, acted with vulnerability. Elizabeth could have thrown it away, or it could have been lost or destroyed, causing more heartache and suffering, but she didn't. She received it, and she grew from it. Thus, after this lesson in humility, Elizabeth grows. She gains more patience, more gratitude, more respect, even though she had privately deemed unworthy of her attention. She gains a restored hope in the world and others, and by the end of the novel, rates herself as more content than her sister Jane, the novel's epitome of goodwill and even temper, for she writes, quote, I am happier even than Jane. She only smiles, I laugh. A lesson in humility led to growth in virtue and joy, all in a seemingly ordinary way. And this is the power of Jane Austen's novels. Her unique genius lies in presenting ordinary men and women, attending to the details of life in a way that subtly reminds us that these everyday judgments, decisions, and conversations are actually of life-changing and extraordinary significance. So the next time you want to read a work that is beautifully written, will make you smile and laugh or perhaps humble you and hopefully will help orient your own imagination, your intellect and will towards virtue. Why not read Jane Austen? Thank you. Now I do have some time to address some questions here. Um, actually, I'll think I'll, I'll start with Leah's question. She asks, which of Austen's works should a new reader read first? And I, and I will recommend reading Pride and Prejudice only because it is one that just immediately grabs your imagination and attention. When Austen was editing Pride and Prejudice in her letters, she wrote many letters about the process of writing, Austen said she lopped and cropped um, Pride and Prejudice to make it more light and bright and sparkling. So she, she had long tracks, apparently more like philosophical meditations, but she took those out. So the novel is very quick. There's a lot of dialogue, there's quick action. There are many letters spread throughout the novels, which is always a good um, way to shift your attention to another character. So I would say begin with Pride and Prejudice. Okay, Deacon Clark has a question. What influences do we know of in the formation and education of Miss Austen? We know little directly of her life, but I'm curious if there's more to be gleaned of her philosophy in her novels than I picked the first and only time I read through all of them. Great question. This is really a wonderful question to ask because Austen's education was fascinating. She was sent to school with her older sister, Cassandra, 
um, actually to Southampton um, in England, where both of them caught uh, typhus and almost died. And the parents brought them back home, and then they were educated at home for the rest of their life. Their father had a school. Um, he brought in neighborhood boys. He would teach in his home. He was the clergyman of that village. And Austin and all of her siblings had free access to their father's library, which was extensive. So it's really cool. You can actually look at some of the books that Austin read, and they have annotations in them. Uh, we know that her family also put on several theatricals. Um, it was a very vibrant, intellectually um, engaging family. So uh, Austin, you could say, was self-educated, but, but homeschooled in the sense that she read wildly and she she thought much, and she obviously had great conversations about these ideas with her family. Um, what we pick up in her novels is actually very Aristotelian. Her understanding of virtue as that mean between the extremes really comes forth in, in all of her novels. So um, it's, it's really quite wonderful to see Austen promoting these values of virtue um, in that understanding, which then later on um, Aquinas picks up from Aristotle, and, and we still see the truths of them and the echoes. Okay, and Claire asks, could you ex please explain why most people admire characters like Elizabeth Bennet, but are rather put off by characters like Fanny Price or Anne Elliot? So two other heroines in her other novels, Mansfield Park and Persuasion. Clara says, people don't seem to appreciate gentle characters anymore. Most of the recent movie adaptations of Persuasion or Mansfield Park have actually changed the main characters to make them more interesting. It's very annoying when that happens. Um, Claire says, can you please explain why so many people in our society are bored by gentle characters? And don't get me wrong, I do like Elizabeth's character a lot. I just think she's a little overrated compared to some of Jane Austen's other characters. Again, great question, Claire, and great comment. Um, I, I, I think you're spot on there, too. The light, bright, and sparkling kind of vivacity of Elizabeth does tend to overshadow somebody like a Fanny Price or an Anne Elliot. So I'll speak to mostly to Anne Elliot. I'm actually we're going through persuasion currently in my current course on um, romantic literature. And ultimately, I think what, Claire, you're, you're tending to is, is our day-to-day is our -day of actually not realizing or recognizing or wanting to recognize that we have an interior life. Everything is put it on the external, show what you think and believe externally, and... If there's time for thoughtful deliberation or contemplation, this makes me uncomfortable to think about myself. So I'll distract myself and you know go onto my phone or social media or whatever it might be. But Austin right here is really showing that fascinating interior strength. And again, this might be part of her, her genius as an author that she actually crafts interesting, quiet characters. I would look towards movies. Um, none are coming to mind now of where we have that, that quiet strength in, in a visual way, but I think that's what great actors can do. They can convey the interior, the vibrant interior life in a way that draws your attention, that attracts you. Um, really what I would look at, though, mostly is the lives of the saints, where, you know, and actually this ties to, to the next question, you see somebody like St. Therese, who's living a cloistered life, and yet what vibrancy and life she has interiorly. So I, I think um, 
today's world. So, so Claire, you're asking why people today are so bored by gentle characters. I think it's because maybe we don't have the courage or, or, or ability to understand that we have this, this truly um, gift of interiority uh, that we can develop and grow in our relationship with examining ourselves and hopefully too, especially from a Catholic perspective, realizing God dwells, dwells within too and forming that relationship with him. Okay, and then so to go to Joan's question, she says one of the fav her favorite things about Jane Austen's characters is that no decision is too small to be significant. Flirtation, gossip, sharp words, etc. Would it be fair to draw a comparison between Austen's understanding of virtue and morality and the little way of St. Therese? Again, thanks, Joan. That's, a, that's another fantastic. You guys all have great questions. Um, and again, I, I think kind of tying to Claire's and, and what I focused on today of just something as simple as when you're serving coffee, she takes that opportunity to, to show her interest and ask him, you know, how is your sister doing? Um, I think really you can draw a nice comparison to those small, unnoticed um, acts in which we are practicing virtue not to be seen. And therefore, we know that we are doing this for, for the sake of others as a sacrifice to offer to God for the sake of other souls. Um, and so again, Austin, in, if you remember the quote in her little two inches of ivory where she's painting these lives with so fine a brush, Austin is really emphasizing, which again, saints like St. Therese bring to us in full color, the fact that all that we do, every detail that we do, can be an act of virtue. And for the saints, all that we do, washing dishes without complaining about getting splashed by dirty water, everything that we do can be sanctified. Okay, um, Sharon. Sharon asks a question. What do you think is Austen's attitude towards marriage? In most of her novels, the married couples do not present marriage as a particularly happy state. In Pride and Prejudice, the Bennets and Mr. Collum, Collins and the Wickhams certainly paint a dismal picture of marriage. <laughs> You're absolutely right, Sharon. Although the gardeners do seem to be reasonably happy and compatible, their kind is a rarity in most of her novels. The happy endings usually involve a marriage, as in Emma or Sense and Sensibility, but the novel leaves the couple at the wedding. What are we to surmise will be the long-term nature of these marriages? Will Elizabeth and Darcy be happily married? Great question, Sharon. Also, too, I'll, I'll point you to this, this whole world of Austin spinoffs, which I, which I have not very much delved into. Um, thousands of people have also asked this question and have written books on you know, the life after Darcy and Elizabeth get married. Um, but what I would say here is I do think that we can have reasonable hope that theirs will be a good marriage, but not to say that there will be suffering and heartache and brokenness. Um, what's beautiful, the way Austin portrays Elizabeth's growing love for Darcy, is that it's not that she read the letter, realized she was wrong, totally humbled, and then starts to fall in love with him. She actually believes that she did make the right decision to refuse his proposal of marriage, even after she re-evaluated her own actions and his. But what, what Austin shows is that Elizabeth's love actually is grounded in gratitude and respect. 
So she is seeing Darcy's character in ways that don't necessarily have to do with Elizabeth. And she is finding something in him, and again, it's not just his attentions or words towards her, but in Darcy's own character that is, that is worthy of respect. So, so, and also too, they're very capable of communicating well and um, uh, energetically with each other. So communication is also key. So I think looking at the other elements of what love is founded on, Austin very clearly shows that love really has to be that choice, that act of your will. Um, the, the feelings will, will come and go as they will, but if you've got those solid foundations and that mutual respect, mutual gratitude for each other's strengths, mutual vulnerability in being able to be aware of your weakness, to have the courage to point out the flaw of another, and to be able to kind of, again, use that brokenness as a means to expand and grow. Um, I, I, do, I do have hopes for Elizabeth's and, and Darcy's marriage. Okay, uh, we have another question here from Anne-Marie. How does literature open us up to change? Does it soften the needed wound? Great question. Um, I'll, I'll quote from, paraphrase, I don't have it in front of me. I'll quote from Pope Benedict, and, and I think this will be our last question. Um, Pope Benedict has this beautiful reflection on beauty and how beauty can act as a wound. So he characterizes, it could be of architecture, music, literature, whatever it might be. But he says, the beauty can be the arrow which wounds your heart, takes you outside of yourself, and orients you to beauty himself, namely God. So I think literature, but any other great work of art, if we allow ourselves to kind of have that vulnerability and openness, like to be willing to be wounded by beauty, by truth, by goodness, then it allows us again to kind of, again, reflect inwardly, realizing, oh wait, I'm not the only one here take us outside of ourselves, orient us to truth, to goodness, to beauty. And that right there really shows the power of good art. So with this, I would like to thank all of you for attending and watching. And those of you who submitted your questions, I see there's more I didn't get to, but I'm going to think about them and you can email me. Um, but again, thank you so much for attending our principal's live lecture.